Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes. My guest today is Chris Wallace, Senior Portfolio Manager here at the firm. Today, we're going to be spending a little bit of time focusing on a recent webinar that Chris hosted that touched on the impact of reversing QE and deficit spending here specifically within the U.S. Uh, Chris, welcome. Thanks for having. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. So you know, let's, let's just start off with, at one of the, you know, the major topics that we discussed uh, through that webinar, which was the impact of quantitative tightening on repricing assets. Uh, you know, as, as we've you know, well, well discussed, you know, markets really move based off liquidity, uh, and, and QE has had a, a massive impact over the last decade. Um, QE funds economic activity. Uh, the remainder of that activity ends up flowing through into risk, asset, risk assets. Uh, as that is a backdrop, can you, you know, uh, go a little bit further into those, yeah, those thoughts and, ab- and see where we're at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's easy as you go through any long economic cycle and invariably excesses are built up and investors are used to those excesses being built up within the economy itself. And we've seen that in prior cycles where housing uh, gets a little oversupplied or autos get oversupplied or other sectors, uh, you start to build little bubbles that need to be recessed, and you recess the employment, you recess the units that are being purchased, and things of that nature. This cycle was very different because the excesses really were not built up in the economy, they were built up in the capital markets, and as you described it, that's exactly right. You know, liquidity moves assets, and the, the underlying fundamentals dictate the rate of movement up or down relative to the broader asset move. And so while we focus on those fundamentals to dictate what's going to do better than the broader averages, it's important to understand liquidity is the underlying driver. And as you described it, we are quantitative tightening is the exact opposite of quantitative easing. Uh, and when you had quantitative easing and we printed $15 trillion, well in excess of what the economy needed, those excess monies, those monies that were not used for employment, CapEx, R&D, things of that nature, end up in risk assets. And central banks through QE were basically running a centrally planned capital markets. And as they step back, the underlying asset values have to be supported by the excess cash that's created within the economy itself and within the savings of households and businesses. So, so I think that's warrants repeating, right? So you see $15 trillion enter the global marketplace. The, the end result of that, you know, specifically in the, in, within the U.S., you witnessed for uh, nearly a decade here where we're generating returns that are you know, close to 2x historical norms. Yes. Right? So, so I, you know, you're, as you're continuing here, so, so where do we go as we begin, yeah. begin to unwind this? No, that's exactly right. So that's where the excesses are. They're, they're, they're in valuations, they're in liquidity. Because we maintain those levels for so long, it does impact the real economy in some respects. And so it, it, you know, whether it's the valuations in commercial real estate, the undervaluations or the underfunded status that still exists in entitlement obligations, and this concept or this myth that there's real liquidity out there and corporations can run more debt on their balance sheets because rates won't rise significantly and they don't have to pay off that debt, they can just continue to roll that debt. All those myths are going to be dispelled as we start to remove the QE. So QE, you print the money, it goes into the banking system, and as a result, you suppress volatility, you reduce the risk premium that boosts asset valuations. It also creates excess reserves and excess dollar liquidity, which feeds the risk appetite. Well, the opposite is true with quantitative tightening. You 
increase volatility, you decrease risk premiums, uh, you decrease dollar liquidity and excess reserves. And that's really the, the irony of this is, you know, the sell-off we had in October, it's, the, you know, pick your way you want to describe it, right? It, it's the worst month in 10 years, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's horrible. That was not price discovery. That was just de-risking. That was volatility increasing and factor-based strategies, hedge-based strategies, just liquidating what they own. So, and I think that's that's really important, right? So, yeah. so let me just pause you there. So, you described de-risking. So, are you? Are you uh, the scenario here is one of okay. We've had a phenomenal run in X sector, X space, whatever it might be. Um, I need to readjust my portfolio because one, it's either oversubscribed to that area at this point, or potentially, you know, we're looking at valuations at that level and they are approaching levels where we are uncomfortable. Right. Is that fair to say? Correct. And so you sell what you own. Um, and when you de-risk, you reduce exposure. So the irony in all this is, you know, this is similar to every other beginning sell-off, whether it's a cyclical bear or just a correction, is you sell your longs and you buy your shorts. So there's this kind of state of confusion in the marketplace as people are looking at, well, that doesn't make sense that that company's going down so much and this company's going up. You know, it, Well, that, that's just it. It's de-risking. It's like a global margin call. And that's essentially all that October was. So, so we're working through October, you know, but this is, we finally closed the book on it. We're happy with that. But, you know, as, as your comments mentioned, right, you, you talk about deficits and, mm-hmm. uh, one of the larger topics that we, we've discussed uh, at that webinar was, you know, that U.S. deficits now do matter. Um, you know, foreign banks have stopped increasing the amount of U.S. Treasuries that they hold. Uh, rates are starting to move up. Yeah, as you as you, you mentioned too, you know, this is putting you know pretty material impacts on places like housing, autos, even the high yield market today. Um, just generally speaking, you know, what what are the big effects on the economy when when this begin, uh, when, as as our deficit continues to grow? Yeah, no, this is definitely going to be a big issue, and it, and it's one. You know, that we've discussed a little bit, I guess, throughout the year, which is the changing role of the dollar. Uh, The fact that deficits are probably going to start to matter again as foreign central banks back away. And, you know, this is this is not a shock. This is not a surprise. It's just it hadn't been a factor in the in the investment world for almost seven decades. And so investors aren't look or you aren't used to looking at this as a potential issue. But it is. You know, the the deficits are as wide as they've been, you know, at, during a wartime period, and yet the economy's booming. Uh, we wouldn't be sustaining such high levels of real growth without the federal budget increasing dramatically this year and without cutting corporate taxes. And the real underlying driver of these deficits is, in fact, the entitlement obligations that are set to increase. And so, you know, they're probably close to 14% of GDP. You can't just go out and cut that. That would create a recession in and of itself. Yet, as you expressed it, I don't feel like, and we don't believe that rates are rising for, quote, good reasons. They're rising because the arbitrage that existed through most of the year for both European and Japanese investors to buy U.S. treasuries and hedge out the currency risk and do so at a profit was in their favor. So those funds were still coming uh, from overseas to fund our deficits. What happened in late September was it flipped. It is no longer economic. They actually make more money buying a German 10-year than they would buying a U.S. 10-year. And so as that, we've seen that liquidity begin to be withdrawn from the Treasury market. Rates begin to rise. 
and it is crowding out the private sector. And we crowd it out by what we're witnessing in housing. Housing is selling off. Mortgage rates are up 100 basis points. Used car values are beginning to correct. Therefore, it extends the length of time you need to pay down your loan before you can turn in your, your slightly used car for a new car. And that is classic end-of-cycle behavior. So there's no question that U.S. deficits matter. And it's, it's going to get to be a bigger deal. Um, the other reason why it's important and why it's so nuanced versus prior cycles is the Fed is not going to have the same reaction function, right? They're, they're trying to normalize rates, normalize liquidity. Um, and the reason they need to do that is we actually need higher rates. We have too many inefficient businesses that are, quote, zombie companies. That's bad for productivity. Uh, we need to increase longer-term returns for pensions so that we can fill some of these deficits we have. We were at the point where quantitative easing and financial repression was starting to cause more problems globally than it was solving. So there's not going to be, and I think this may surprise investors, there's not going to be this quick reaction function just to go back and buy you know, securities and and pull the lever on interest rates and cut them dramatically. So let, let me let me just jump in there. So uh, you use you, know, you use the term zombie companies. You've used it a couple times. Uh, all right. Can you just do this real quickly? Can you define what you describe as a, as a zombie company, and then how, when actual real rates move, that will impact a business? Yeah, sure. Schedule, yeah. Uh, I mean, group. there's no question, and, and I, I don't think anybody will be surprised by this comment, that as you get later into an economic cycle and into a capital market cycle, complacency gets bred within investors and within corporate management themselves. So you have some companies <clears throat> that will rely on aggressive accounting to demonstrate EBITDA growth, whether it's through acquisitions or through managing the balance sheet and capitalizing costs that would normally be expensed. Um, and in doing so, they're able to access debt markets at attractive rates and execute what may ultimately be a flawed strategy. And as we move forward and liquidity begins to drive up, dry up and, and interest rates begin to increase and high yield spreads begin to increase, they're going to have to roll that debt at higher prices. And some companies are going to find that growth wasn't as good, margins aren't as good, therefore free cash flow is not as good. And while they can service the debt, they really can't pay it down. Or if they can pay it down, they have to do it at the expense of their operations and their strategy. So they're not going to be able to spend as much on R&D, new product development, or they're not going to be able to grow their capacity. And they're going to, quote, become a zombie company. Um, and ultimately, there will be those few companies that, you know, they'll, they'll file bankruptcy because of this, uh, simply because what was perceived as cash flow won't turn out to be sustainable cash flow. Right. So, I mean, really, this, you know, keeping rates somewhat artificially this low for this long um, has enabled a lot of companies just to continue just to lever themselves up to, to survive. And uh, when when that uh, that mechanism begins to erode, they're, they're going to become exposed. And um, all right, great. So let's let's uh, you know shift lanes a little bit here uh, toward the the changing role of the U.S. dollar. Um, you know, I know this is something that is uh, is always of, of interest when we speak with clients. Um, but you know, it it sounds today like the economic models of the U.S. and and specifically China um, seeming to be at, at odds. And and there's a couple of very high level differences today uh, as we look at China. Right, their their main objective is driving exports, creating jobs. Um, they are happy to lever up to continue to fund loss-making operations. Um, 
China is actually now for the first time or, or first time in some time running a current account deficit. Uh, where do you stand and where does that, that stand with the impact yeah, in relation sure. to the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it is underappreciated and it's something investors need to become aware of because this is going to be a long-term secular trend. And while the U.S. was kind of the sole superpower and the rest of the world was heavily reliant on our dollar uh, for global trade, that's just been changing for the last several years. It's why, you know, in 2014, we did see a peak in the holdings of by foreign central banks of U.S. treasuries because, quite frankly, they just don't need them anymore, uh, or as many of them. Um, part of that is, is born out of structural fundamentals. You know, the emerging and developing world is a much larger part of the global economy, and they are the drivers of the growth. And quite frankly, we can't export enough dollars for them to continue to use the dollars to import the goods and services they need. Our primary method or one of the, one of the primary methods for exporting dollars was always through the importation of oil. As we imported oil, we sent dollars around the rest of the world. Now that we're a large producer of oil, those dollars are no longer available uh, as cheaply, and that dollar liquidity is a little more scarce. So foreign uh, central banks and, and foreign governments have been working to kind of wean themselves off the dollar. China... Right, so that's, that, that's exactly that's what we're it. seeing, right? So in, And so now we've got, you know, one denominated oil contracts that is reducing the dependency of uh, ex-U.S. countries on the U.S. dollar. And, and so, we're, you know, where does that play in the process of a, of a global power, of a, a global influence for the U.S. and, and ultimately the, for the, the economy. Yeah, I mean, this is why I think it's really difficult for China and U.S. as it relates to tariff and trade to come to any significant agreement. You know, will we get some notional agreement? Yeah, will it be symbolic? Absolutely. But ultimately, China, because it does have structural deficits, or beginning to have structural deficits, it is imperative. I mean, it is it is a direct attack on its sovereignty if it is not able to use the yuan to print money to import goods and services. Uh, and that and so that ultimately is the battle line. Um, at the same time, you know, we've taken global trade about as far as we can politically. That That is what's fed into this rise in popul populism that we've seen not only in the United States, but in Europe and elsewhere, that while global trade is efficient and is great as far as economic theory go, it does hollow out your middle class. So, you know, if you think about these opposing forces and the changing currency regimes and the need for China to, to have full control over its autonomy and not be subject to dollar policy, it's just really difficult to see a material agreement between the two, or for that matter, to see the friction ease. I mean, this is, this is classic geopolitical uh, power struggle, and China's going to continue to rise, and they're going to confront us, and we have to figure out how we're going to deal with that. And they're exploiting us at our weakest point, which is don't negotiate, don't give in, let our, our federal deficits uh, do, do the work for them, and we're trying to go after them directly as well, which is tighten up dollar liquidity and get them at their weakest point because they desperately need to devalue their currency, but they just need the air cover to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, there's a lot of posturing here. You know, what, what uh, would you say in terms of what we can do here within the U.S. to combat 
what the, the China stance is today. Yeah, you know, I honestly, I don't know there's a lot we can do over a short term, and anything we do is probably not economic economically value-added. But, you know, let me give you a path, what I think is kind of the best win-win for both parties. And it may be a low probability event, but it, it's certainly a path. I, I, I wouldn't expect the, the Fed to do anything, you know, prior to the elections. And they already are, you know, already have a light shined on them for being too political. So I don't expect anything to happen until after the elections. But once they're over, I would expect Powell to walk back some of the tight monetary policy talk. The guy is data dependent. While wages and employment is great, the forward-looking data is not. We're starting to see the stress in credit. We're seeing it in housing. We're seeing it in autos. So at a minimum, it gives him enough air cover to pause in December um, after he does the rate increase and see what happens. That'll help. We've also already seen the Fed discuss increasing dollar liquidity by changing the way they pay interest rates on overnight uh, excess reserves. So let's say we get through the midterm elections. There's no significant shift in power in Washington. There's no grand negotiated agreement. We go forward with tariffs. Uh, maybe we, we put tariffs on the full, full $500 billion, but we do so with certain exclusions. And then that gives Xi the opportunity to then, as a countermeasure, devalue the currency. What that actually does, a tariff is nothing more than a VAT tax. We could put a 15 to 25% tariff on Chinese goods. China could then devalue 15 to 20%. It would actually increase receipts into the federal government, help fund some of the deficit. Uh, it wouldn't materially change the input costs for companies because they would be buying into a weaker currency market, and that would give uh, China the chance to devalue and, and save face in the process. That then puts the, uh, the pain of the VAT or the tariff onto the Chinese population, um, but, you know, I, I think it, it would be subtle enough. It would be difficult to notice. And so I could see that as a path. And then that reduces the tensions. It addresses some of the imbalances in the economy. It doesn't say that we're not going to have our challenges. We are. I mean, the economy is not going to be growing as fast next year. Margins are going to come down. Uh, you know, debt costs are going to go up, even if it's just lack of liquidity or a little bit of spread widening. And that's going to impact valuations. Right. And, these, and these things are just ha they're, they're happening. They've already left the barn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's pivot here toward a couple myths that we or you uh, began to dispel, uh, namely stocks and bonds uh, inversely created. Uh, actually, inversely correlated. Uh, you mentioned that that is a, that is a myth of today. Uh, where where do we where do we stand with that? Yeah, you know, I think it bonds and stocks being inversely correlated has a pretty significant impact on the way people structure their portfolios and even even select strategies as far as how they're implemented. Um, and bond stocks being inversely correlated, is, it, it's been with us for several decades, but it's certainly a product of a declining rate environment. And then in which you get to the end of a secular uh, leveraging of balance sheets and you address the deflation with QE, it's a perfect environment. Uh, for those for stocks and bonds to be inversely correlated. And we're moving into the exact opposite right. of that. So I would expect stocks and bonds, their correlation to be spurious. Uh, sometimes it'll be inversely correlated. Sometimes they'll be positively correlated. 
So again, that goes back to driving volatility, volatility driving de-risking, and it just adds to a, a lot of the volatility we've seen in, in the capital markets in general. Right, and I think that that goes on to you know one of the topics we've we've previously covered, but the increased volatility uh, leads to future increased volatility, correct? Which will lead to uh, stocks and bonds decoupling from one and, another. And, and another good, uh, another important element of that, not just, you know, the classic VAR model feeding on itself, both positively or negatively, but the use of hedged or factor-based strategies or even passive strategies. And, you know, there's, there is no threat to active management from the use of indices. What really hurts markets is when you have people actively using passive vehicles. And what I mean by that is, you know, you buy or sell the semiconductor ETF or the small cap because you're excited about the dollar or what have you. And though you get in the double long for two days. Well, yeah, yeah, not just that. I mean, what you end up doing is you have a lot more investors and incremental money going to strategies that are not dependent on price relative to the fundamentals. They're dependent on time. Right. And so when you're a time dependent investor, you get major price dislocations at the individual security level. And we're seeing that we're seeing that in spades during during October. Got it. <clears throat> Here's one more myth for you. Uh, money creates value. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely think this is going to ring true. Um, you know, money creates value kind of goes in lines with, well, the central banks can always support capital markets, and they can't. You just get to a point where the medicine's causing more pain than good, and it needs to be withdrawn. Uh, it, you carry it down to the corporate entity level, and you're really looking at, well, you know, I can use share buybacks to boost my earnings and, and, and support my earnings growth and support my stock price. You can do that. And for some companies who have very high levels of profitability and return on equity, there's more than enough capital out there to keep that going over a very long period of time. That's not necessarily the case with the average company, certainly not in the small cap space or even the mid cap space. There can be some element of capital return, but we've been deferring CapEx for a long time. Uh, companies are going to need to spend on CapEx. They're going to need to spend on R&D in order to maintain margins and maintain growth and maintain relevance within their supply chains. And that, that is what creates value. You know, financial engineering at low rates by ramping up leverage on a balance sheet is just pulling demand forward. And what they pulled forward was the demand for their stock. They did absolutely nothing for the underlying earnings power of the company. Yeah, so that was my next question. If, if how do you how do you create value with money? But you know, it, it, at this point, um, it's not so much that that engineering financial engineering exercise of of cash to balance sheets, cash buying back stock, but more it's we need to see some some real. R&D expenditure, we need to actually start beginning to invest in, in CapEx, and that will pay dividends in the, in the future for the, for the first time in really some, some substantial time. Absolutely. Uh, and you also mentioned there, you know, central banks cannot support markets indefinitely, right? Uh, and I would imagine that you can also link that in with we are becoming, uh, or each sector is becoming very, very security specific because of that. Uh, do, you, do you care to, to elaborate? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this will go along with the myth that you can just passively own an index at a low cost and get an acceptable return. Again, you couldn't ask for a better environment than the one created via QE for passive investing. And as you already mentioned, we're already, you know, we've been compounding at twice the historical rate uh, for some time. 
And, you know, to put a real number around that, kind of wealth to GDP is at 4.9 times. Uh, it's historically at 3.8. It's one of the most mean reverting elements within economic history. So the way you fix that is you grow nominal GDP faster than you grow wealth, meaning broad returns come down, GDP growth stays steady, or even increases at a greater rate than market returns. And when you really dig into what this means, it means the market in the aggregate may look cheap with an average PE that looks attractive, but it's a barbelled market, right? Your cyclicals are trading at single digit rates, your good growth companies in the low 20s, so it looks attractive. And the reality is growth is slowing, margins are coming under pressure because we're in the later stages of the economic cycle. Liquidity is withdrawing, and it's going to be very idiosyncratic. So, you know, a lot of clients have been asking, well, you know, where do you hide out? Well, you're not going to hide out in a sector. It just doesn't exist. Um, and as I mentioned, it's because we're recessing valuations and we're recessing the excesses in the market, as some people have described it, you know, the everything bubble. Um, but there are opportunities out there. And it just means you have to buy the right retailer. You have to buy the right bank. You can't just buy banks. You have to buy the right insurer. You can't just buy insurers. And you have to look at what in, where they are in their supply chain. Look at the balance sheet. Look what management's doing. Have they been good stewards of capital, good stewards of their assets? And then let the market give you the opportunities. So we kind of went into October with the idea that Liquidity was going to get tight. We're at the end, tail end of the cycle. Uh, let's get out ahead of this. Let's have a plan. Let's look at companies we want to buy in a correction, whether that's stocks we already own that we want to add to so we can consolidate. Let's look at balance sheets we don't want to own because, as you know, we would tell you, credit's already started to turn. It's normal. It's going to get incrementally worse. That's just what it does after you've been lending money for a long time. Um, and so let's be prepared for this. And so we use that volatility not to make sector bets, but to pick off individual securities that we're comfortable will still earn our return uh, and not sacrifice our return expectations, even though we think it's going to be an incrementally more challenging environment for the broad universe. So you say credit is, has, done, is, has begun to turn. And you know, we, we do spend a fair amount of time here at, at Von Nelson on, on credit markets and, and trying to understand uh, what's playing out there. Uh, but a few times now you've, you've mentioned that they're deteriorating and this is this is normal activity in your in your mind. Uh, yep. Can you can you expand there? Yeah. You know this is look. We've been lending money. Uh, defaults have been low. Liquidity's been plentiful. Uh, that is a self reinforcing cycle. So you know if you had a marginal business strategy, but you could continuously either lever up to continue to try to fund it or roll that debt. You know eventually uh, those losses get realized. Uh, likewise, you know we've been lending to consumers and businesses. Uh, we've been lending to commercial real estate, and we started to see softness develop. So, you know, we're going to start having these corrections, right? If you were a commercial real estate company, and let's say, you know, you knew you were a little over levered, you're paying out all your free cash flow, and you've been relying on a low cap rate environment to support asset prices so you could sell those assets and pay down debt, hey, we get a, a kind of a bit of a jump condition in those in those valuations, you're not going to be able to delever those losses start to show up. Uh, and it may be as simple as even if it's not an economic loss, it's going to start to show up as a mark to market loss because 
without liquidity and and depth of price discovery, you know, the marks on balance sheets are going to start to show a little bit of a little bit of pressure and a little bit of stress. Um, and we're we're seeing this. You know, we're seeing it in some of the regional banks where some credits are starting to go bad in in certain areas, whether it's commercial real estate or some personal lending. Uh, again, the good news is. The consumer's balance sheet is in phenomenally good shape in the United States. Um, the corporate balance sheets are not super scary. They're fully levered. So whereas an unlevered corporate balance sheet was a source for more growth, by and large, we've, we've exploited that opportunity. But this is normal, normal seizing, a seasoning of credit. And this is not an 0809 event by any stretch. Great. All right. So as, as, as we begin to, to get to the end of this, this conversation today. Uh, let's just wrap up with talking about how you, how you apply some of this to the portfolio. And you know, you've gone on, and I've heard you mentioned a handful of times here, that, that most companies that you look at in today's world have one of four problems. They either have a valuation issue, slowing revenue, margin pressure, or you find them, as you just mentioned, with excess leverage. Uh, I can imagine that those uh, those businesses that check all four boxes, uh, those to get immediately, uh, they're e- those are the easy ones to, to, to start crossing off. But you know, if you've got these issues, you know, what's the, the less of the greater yeah. evil here, and and how do you begin to build positions if uh, you know everything has a little bit of hair on it? Yeah, absolutely, and and it's important. I know the as you said, you know, there's kind of four things we're looking at, um, and almost every company is going to have at least one. I I frankly believe they all have a valuation problem. Some of it material, some of it not material. But even if you have a really good company, clean balance sheet, great margins, great growth, if the rest of the market sells off, eventually it's advantageous for investors to sell your security and go buy those other companies that have sold off anymore, uh, even more. And so at the end of the day, there really is no place to hide. It's just a question as to when uh, things reprice. And so does a company have sufficient time that they can grow enough earnings so that that repricing is is relatively immaterial? Um, by and large, though, in the small cap space where it's a little more cyclical than the broader universe, we, it really is a trade-off between, okay, we know revenue growth is going to be a little lighter by and large. We know margins may be a little bit lighter. Uh, where is the opportunity set? And the market's not coming at this flat-footed, right? They've aggressively started selling certain sectors, and there are already areas of the market that do have all four of these issues uh, that have sold off enough where, yeah, they have slow revenue growth, they have falling margins, and they may have a bit of debt, but they've completely fixed the valuation problem, so those with the most hair on them may actually turn out to be the best opportunities. But our point is don't go into it blind recognize your trade-offs, don't sacrifice your return criteria, and understand those end markets and know, look, liquidity isn't always going to be there. That can be your friend or that can be your foe. It all depends on what you own. Terrific. Well, good. Let's, let's leave it at that. And, and thank you for joining us. We, we always appreciate the insight. And uh, we look forward to having you on again in, uh, in near term here. You bet. Thank Thanks. you, Dan.